Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. Hello, this is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ. I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Dan Rohn, who's going to be with us today. Dan is Assistant Professor at the Baylor University Physical Therapy Program. He's also a Research Fellow in the Office of the Surgeon General of the Army. He's based in San Antonio, Texas. Welcome, Dr. Rohn. Thank you. Excited to be here. Today, we're going to talk about an article that he and his colleagues have published in PTJ. It's entitled, Comparison of Downstream Healthcare Utilization, Costs, and Long-Term Opioid Use for Physical Therapist Management versus Opioid Therapy Management after Arthroscopic Hip Surgery. Dan, I really enjoyed your article, and I thought I would begin by doing a little summary of the work, and then we'll go and talk about some questions. Now, the objective of the study was to compare downstream healthcare utilization and opioid use following arthroscopic hip surgery for different patterns of physical therapy and prescription opioids. This study was an observational cohort of patients who were in the military health system who underwent arthroscopic hip surgery. They studied the total of 1,870 patients 82.7% of whom received physical therapy, 71.6% received prescription opioids, and just over 56% received both physical therapy and opioids. One of the aims of the study was to look at the downstream healthcare utilizations in patients who received only physical therapy versus those who received only opioid therapy after surgery. And a second aim was to examine the influence of the timing by comparing outcomes for patients who received physical therapy first with those patients who received opioid therapy first. They found that physical therapy instead of opioids was associated with less downstream healthcare utilization in total. And for those patients who received both, receiving physical therapy first was associated with lower hip-related downstream costs and lower opioid use than opioids first. So my first question, Dan, is your data source was the Military Health System Data Repository. And it's a really interesting database. It captures and tracks all medical visits for all beneficiaries of the Department of Defense. And it includes retired, active military, and service family members. What do you see as the pros and the cons of using this database for your study? I think one of the pros is that this is a closed database, meaning, you know, the military health system works inside of a somewhat socialized medicine system inside this larger third-party payer culture. So access to care, cost of care, those types of things are not going to be a problem. And uh, we're also not worried about other health insurance, different pay rates, those types of things that I think are a challenge when you're dealing with other private databases. So even in our cohort, it is possible that some individuals have other health insurance. Less than 3% of our cohort even had any other private health insurance, maybe a, a spouse or something like that. It doesn't mean that they used it, 
just means that they were listed as having another one. So you have fairly reliable data in terms of what's actually being done you're able to uh, capture. And so that's uh, definitely a plus when you're looking at this. The other nice thing is, and just a reminder, when a lot of people here in the military health system data repository, you know, they think automatically that it's just service members. But really, you know, TRICARE serves beneficiary population of roughly 10 million. And, you know, many of these are the family members, retirees. And so it's not just military. It includes some civilians. It also includes all care that occurs not just in military hospitals, but also out in civilian hospitals. There's not military hospitals everywhere, and so TRICARE pays for the beneficiaries to go out and get care in the network. So that's a nice plus because you can compare sometimes care between the two different settings. Some of those strengths might also be seen as some of the weaknesses in terms of generalizability. Perhaps because access to care isn't always a problem, you know, it might not be generalizable to other situations where you have to consider co-pays and whether someone might not come into care because of that. But all in all, in terms of the quality of the data that's coming in, I think it's a, it's a pretty robust database. What was really interesting to me when I thought about the repository, in some ways you were actually studying the population of people in the military health system database it wasn't a sample of the database. You actually were working with the entire database of people who were in there who met your criteria, and that's unusual. Yeah, so to some degree, because we were able to include everybody that met this criteria. However, there was a lot of individuals that met all of the criteria except not being eligible beneficiaries at two years. So you know, we wanted to include, obviously, if we're recording that downstream healthcare utilization, we want to make sure that you're eligible for TRICARE benefits all the way out to two years. And sure. uh, a little over 7,000 individuals actually met our inclusion criteria, all of it except that they were no longer eligible beneficiaries. So they, you know, we don't know why. Maybe they had medical separation, the termination of enlistment, et cetera. Yeah, well, that's a good point. You know, your intent, as I understand it, was to identify adults who were undergoing hip arthroscopy specifically for femoral acetabular impingement. And as you point out in your article, it's the most common reason for this surgery in the military health system. And therefore, patients under 18 and over 50 were excluded from your study. And I understand it makes sense. I wondered if you've considered or possibly have looked at adults over the age of 50 who underwent the same procedure, which might expand the generalizability of your findings. Is that something that you and your team have thought about? Yeah, we thought about it. It's definitely a good point. I think, you know, hip arthroscopy tends to be less common once you get over the age of 50. There's a research focus on that. One large study, systematic review that just came out recently, over 35,000 subjects, you know, had a mean age of 38 to 40 as those, and this is out in the civilian population, not necessarily military. I think once you start getting over 50, arthroscopy rates start to decline, and then your arthroplasty rates start to increase. And so we thought this would probably just be a little bit more generalizable to those that are, to the majority of the individuals that are actually having hip arthroscopy. Makes sense. I noted that you had eight different outcome variables and you followed those variables for 24 months after surgery. 
I'm curious as to why you chose 24 months for the data capture. You know, when it comes to surgical outcomes, it seems that one of those requirements almost is that there's at least a two-year follow-up. So, in fact, when we were identifying this cohort, the interest area was the surgical procedure. That's what set the index date. A lot of surgical journals even state that they won't accept any studies with less than a two-year follow-up. That tends to be sort of the time frame to determine, you know, quote-unquote success. And so we just thought that would be a better overall snapshot than six months or a year. I guess we could have gone a little further, but that just seemed to align with kind of standard surgical uh, outcome standards these days. Makes sense. I was also struck that you used the presence of three or more opioid prescriptions to categorize subjects as chronic opioid users. What was the rationale for that operational definition? I think it somewhat also reflects a bit of the current gaps in the literature. I, I think there's no currently existing consensus on what constitutes chronic opioid use. You know, there isn't a specific amount of opioid prescriptions or a specific amount of time. But several studies have utilized different measures, and so we found several that had used three or more prescriptions. And so there was sort of a uh, reference from that perspective. And the other thing to remember is that, you know, these three or more opioid prescriptions were in addition to what was given during the immediate perioperative period, which we didn't include. So, you know, you come out with your surgery, it's somewhat painful, we expect you to get an initial opioid prescription for that immediate post-operative pain. And then these would be three more in addition to that period down the road. And so we wanted to somewhat capture a um, somewhat of the healthcare system providing additional prescriptions or somewhat of the patient factors in there in terms of the patient coming back in and saying, hey, I, I need more opioids. And so three plus seemed to be a good threshold based on that, and then also the fact that there's been a standard for it in other, in other literature. I was also struck by 91% of your subjects had opioid therapy, physical therapy, or both. That 9% who didn't receive either uh, is, is interesting to me, and I wondered if you look very closely at the 9%. I know you reported that those who did not receive either opioids or physical therapy outside of that immediate perioperative period, had the least amount of downstream health care utilization. Do you know anything more about that 9%? That was a really interesting finding, I think, maybe the most surprising. We didn't run any formal comparisons. I think that would have sort of shifted us away from our initial goal, but I definitely think that there's something there that merits more attention and certainly got our attention, and, and I would like to understand, you know, what these individuals look like a little bit more. But an, at initial glance, it looks like, you know, less reactive duty. They have lower rates of comorbidities, and so maybe that has something to do with it going into this. It's hard to know for sure in the military sometimes you have these surgeries and then you have to uh, deploy more of there was a higher rate of uh, officers in this category or that came from officer families, and sometimes they, as leaders, maybe feel like, all right, I've had my surgery, I've got to move on, I don't have time for this. You know, all of that is just speculation. I'm not really sure, but it's a small group, but it's definitely something we need to learn more about. Yeah, it might be something of interest to look at in the future. If we go back to the 91% for a moment, you reported in your study that 56% had both 
opioids and physical therapy after surgery outside of that immediate perioperative period. I have no frame of reference for the 56%. Uh, did that surprise you, or was that about what you expected? Yeah, I'm not sure what I expected, but I don't think I was surprised. I think additional opioids, certainly from practicing in this setting and seeing how many patients come in with additional opioids was to be expected. Certainly, I would expect physical therapy. I think maybe I was a little bit more surprised at the numbers that didn't have any physical therapy after surgery, you know, close to 20%. That's just really interesting. I don't know whether that was the patient preference. Sometimes some physicians feel like, you know, they they don't really need to refer their patients to physical therapy for some condition. But, you know, typically this is a pretty involved surgery, orthopedic surgery, and in most cases I'd like to see patients come to physical therapy. So I'd like to understand a little bit more about, you know, why one in every five patients didn't make it down to get any post-operative physical therapy care. I was also struck, Dan, by among those who received both opioids and physical therapy, the overall downstream opioid use was significantly higher in the cohort that got opioids before PT. What do you think about that? This is a great question again, and I think it's uh, one we're probably all trying to answer with this sort of PT first movement. One of the unique things I think about this study is, so we have several studies out there that in non-surgical populations that look at this very similar phenomena where we uh, look at observational data and we see that if you go to PT first, there's a decreased downstream healthcare utilization, cost, and also additional procedures. And we haven't really looked at that in uh, surgical population, which I think is unique in the fact that you have a very specific event that occurred. So everybody starts with this uh, surgery, and so you can point to the exact day and then you can follow people forward or patients forward through this pathway of care. So it's maybe a little bit more defined, a little bit more uh, homogenous, and you're you're still seeing this uh, same similar trend. I don't know if it's um, – when we talk about opioid use and chronic opioid use, one of the emerging themes is that, you know, we really don't know how to treat pain. We don't – as a society, we don't need know how to treat chronic pain. And perhaps when you're seeing a therapist first – Maybe there is a little bit more of that appropriate pain education and pain management that occurs, which sends this patient down this pathway that, you know, results in better outcomes. And so I think there's also this sort of prevailing thought in some circles still that, you know, you need to be pain-free before you go to physical therapy and that it's going to be really painful. And so some patients and some surgeons might wait to refer some of those patients that, in theory, might benefit a lot from talking to a therapist, you know, hearing about pain neuroscience. You know, we don't know whether those things occurred in uh, post-operative rehab, but I just think that we're often better poised to start those conversations. We have more time, and so that interaction right there may just set the, that patient on a pathway for decreased utilization and potentially better outcomes. It would really be useful and important to know more about why that finding emerged. And as yeah. you point out, the, you've seen it in other research. Yeah, it's really interesting. That, you know, the thing is most of that has been in, in the same type of data, observational claims-related data. So we don't have a lot of other variables to look at other than the, these claims data. One, th one thing that I thought was really interesting was that 
even though the total number of hip-related visits were the same in both groups that had physical therapy and opioids, the overall hip-related costs were significantly lower than those that had PT first. So these patients have the same number of encounters, but, you know, whatever other care they were getting other than PT was likely more expensive than the physical therapy that they were getting. Not, yeah. not ex- sure exactly why, but I thought that was an interesting finding as well. Well, I was also struck by the finding that patients who received only physical therapy had fewer additional hip surgeries in the following two years compared to those who received only opioids. Is is that correct? Is my memory correct on that? Yeah. So, again, this potentially insinuates or, uh, we don't. again, these are not causal relationships, but something about these types of patients, maybe they just do better or maybe it's having this uh, physical therapy earlier that leads them to not need a revision, to not need an additional surgery. I definitely think, you know, we don't know why exactly, but uh, there's definitely a plus there when it comes to needing further surgeries down the road if you see physical therapy first. I think that's another finding that would be really interesting to explore in the future. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. I really enjoyed the study that you and your colleagues did, and I appreciate your publishing it in Physical Therapy, and I look forward to to seeing more of your work going forward. Congratulations on a nice study. Thank you. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you for having me on this program.